Welcome to the Heal and Expand podcast. I am your host, Yaro K. Bukans, clinically trained therapist, healer, and personal power mentor. In my world, healing is the gateway to expansion, and your personal power is gold. Join me on a journey through the holy trinity of healing, psychological, spiritual, and somatic, using a combination of storytelling, psychoeducation, and ancient wisdom we will excavate and explore what it means and how to heal and expand. Thank you for being here. I would love to begin by telling you my healing journey story. There are many twists and turns and so much active psychological information along the way. And I am a storyteller by nature. I found God my spiritual self on the dance floor of a rave. I say God, but sometimes that has a certain connotation to people. I was not raised with religion. I was raised, my mom said she raised me to find my own sense of spirituality. And I think she did a pretty good job of allowing me to guide myself there. At 19, I was a teenage alcoholic. I had just entered the University of San Francisco. We're going to pause there. We're going to go back a little bit. At 15, I became a colossal nightmare. Anxiety, OCD, I was definitely seeking saving in my boyfriend. I was, you know, obsessive. That anxious attachment was in full force. I was depressed. At points, I was suicidal. When he broke up with me, which thank God he did, I was definitely suicidal. And I was failing out of high school. I had all D's and one F. No all F's in one D. And the reason I had the D was because my English teacher said that when I chose to show up, I had insightful things to say about the quote she would put on the board. I wouldn't go to class. My mom had a meeting with all of my teachers and they said to her, we love her. She is so sweet, so wonderful, so bright when she chooses to show up and she refuses to do any work. That story makes me a little teary. And as you listen to this podcast, something you will learn about me is that when I hit truth or when I hit emotion, I am very quick to get teary. It is a superpower of mine. It does not always feel comfortable in this world that we live in, but more on that as we go along. So my mom gave me an option. She said, you can either basically do night classes and summer school and like program till the end of time and not graduate high school till you're 19, because at this point I was 16. Or you can take the California high school proficiency test and you can go to community college. I chose the latter. And they summed up high school in 100 multiple choice questions and a 30 minute essay. And I passed. Shockingly, like no one knows how that happened. I really basically hadn't gone to a class since eighth grade. And I was a junior, like somehow I made it through because I have a brilliant brain, but I don't know how. And I passed this test. When I entered College of the Redwoods, I actually met people from the city. So I grew up in a very small town. I grew up in the Redwoods and the rivers and the ocean and very small. And I loved every second of it. And I knew that I was not meant to be here forever. I knew that I wanted to live in a city. I wanted to experience other people, other cultures, other things. I wanted an expansive life experience out in the world. 
And so as I got older and into my high school years, I felt very misunderstood. I didn't feel challenged. I didn't feel encouraged. And my mom, who's a beautiful human and parent, did not know what to do with me. So when I entered College of the Redwoods, which is the community college in Humboldt County, I met people from the city and I felt excited. I felt seen. I felt embraced. There was still so much activation in me and anxiety and OCD, and I was drinking every day and it was a huge mess. I went through that for a while. My first semester, I did okay. My second semester, I got a boyfriend who taught me how to study. And I got straight A's that semester, or really actually for three semesters while we were together. When I broke up with him, I went crazy again. So there was this theme. If I had a boyfriend, I was very, you know, good. I wanted to be a good girl. I wanted to be studious. I wanted to be connected. I wanted to be, you know, home. When I would break up with them, I would go wild. And so at the point that I went wild, my parents, my mom and my stepfather at the time said, we got to get her out of here. We got to get her to San Francisco. So I applied to the University of San Francisco and I was accepted based on those beautiful grades I had gotten while I was with that boyfriend. When I stepped foot on the campus in San Francisco, it felt like my life was beginning. And my first weekend there, I met a girl from New York City, which was the penultimate of cool to me at that time. Like this, I lived in this tiny little town in Northern California, and I spent my whole middle school and teenage years reading Vogue and Seventeen and Teen Magazine and being obsessed with Christy Turlington and Kate Moss and all things New York, all things fashion, all things model, all things New York. In fact, at the time, I wanted to be a supermodel. That was like my aspiration. That shifted once I found out I have this brilliant brain that I had not been utilizing. So when I stepped foot on that campus and I met this woman who, or the girl, young lady at the time, who was from New York. I just was so excited. And she invited me to my first rave. I had been wanting to go to raves for years. We didn't really have them where I was from. I loved the music. I felt called to it. I don't know why. I just felt this energy in my body like I was meant to go to raves. So it was January 23rd, 1999. We drove over the Bay Bridge to go to a warehouse in Oakland in ice skating rink in Oakland, actually, I was thinking of this other place that we used to go to raves, but the first one was at an ice skating rink. I stood outside in the rain with ecstasy in my shoe for three hours. They were having a hard time getting people in. There were, you know, regulations and all of these things. And so we stood there in the rain and I was determined and I felt so scared because at that point I had done psychedelics, but I had not done ecstasy. And I had this fear around ecstasy. I had this fear that if I took it, I was going to die. I was really scared of it, but something about this just felt right. And so we waited, we waited for three hours and it's raining and everybody's talking. You can hear the bass inside you can hear. Mm, 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 mm. And I, I felt it in my body. I felt the call of the bass in my body and my soul in my being much like my cat purring on my lap right now. So if you hear that, it's a gentle purr, but you may be able to hear it. When we finally got in, it was freezing because it's ice skating rink, wet clothes, you know, hand in hand. We went up to the second level and there was a DJ playing. He will play a role later in this podcast. Did not know who he was at the time. And we stepped foot. It was me and the woman from New York 
and then another friend we had both made from Southern California. And the three of us, we took the ecstasy, we're dancing, it starts to kick in. And we were so connected. And I literally felt God, spirit, the universe, the divine enter into my body on that dance floor. And in that moment, I knew that I was a part of something so much bigger than me and that I was connected and connection is everything and everything is connected. And it's shot straight through my body in a way that I can barely even describe verbally, but I can feel it. And my, there are tears. And I looked up at this DJ and he was in a black light and he had dreads and I just felt the music move through me and I stopped drinking. My entire life changed on that dance floor. Everything from that moment forward shifted. I became so immersed in that rave scene that it was like I fell in love for the first time in my life, like truly deeply in love. And with every moment, that music, that dancing, that community was bringing me home to me. That baseline, it's like a drumbeat. And if you think about ancient tribal cultures and that drumbeat, right? It's meditative. It connects you back to you. It gets you into your body. It allows you to feel that deep connection, that expansion, that oneness. Now, did I do some drugs while I was in the rave scene? Yes, I did a lot of mushrooms, a lot of acid, uh, very little ecstasy because I just didn't really like that drug. I really, the mushrooms, the acid, they really, the LSD, they really connected me to that spiritual sense of myself, to that ability to feel the oneness. As I released drinking, what do you think happened? We trade addictive behaviors. So when we let go of one, we replace it with another. We don't do this consciously. So I stopped drinking, but my anxiety and my OCD were heightened, exacerbated. I was so into the rave scene. I was just listening to these at these, at the time, these DJs would make mixed tapes and they were kind of bootleg because they were not copyrighted and they would sell them in the record stores on hate street in San Francisco. And so I had my mixed tapes. Yes. I had a cassette player that I would play them on, excuse me for the sniffling. And I would listen to them with these big headphones on and I would walk from, you know, around campus with these big Jenko pants. Some of you may know those. They were big baggy raver pants and like big flared legs and these little cute sweatshirts. And I was like, so in my zone, like I shed off. I had gained, i always was thin uh, throughout my life, but I had gained a lot of weight from drinking, from eating pizza late at night, from doing things that were not in alignment with who I am as a human. And my connection to my soul, to my spirit, to my ability to expand into life energetically in my authenticity. So I'd gained quite a bit of late weight. And when I started going to the rave scene, I dancing and just being connected and shifting the way I was eating. And I felt I was like shedding the weight off so much so that a friend of mine thought I had an eating disorder, which I did not. I had OCD and anxiety, but no eating disorder. And I was just so in love with life. Like I can remember once standing on the University of San Francisco campus, which is this beautiful Jesuit campus. And it sits in the middle of the city overlooking Haight Street. 
And one of the buildings is called Lone Mountain. And I remember standing up there and just feeling the music through my soul, through my spirit, through everything, and just like feeling so much joy, so much oneness, so much connection, like my whole heart expanded. And I was immersing myself in my classes. I was a business marketing major and I was just immersing in and I was so into my English classes. And because it's a Jesuit school, they ask you to take a lot of philosophy, a lot of English. It's a very well-rounded education. They are the intellectuals of the religious world, if you will, um, in some ways, you know, in terms of like educating. Um, I'm sure that that could be argued for other religions. And so we're not going to go there. Uh, but they really want you to take a lot of philosophy, a lot of English. Uh, we took, I took Zen Buddhism. I remember so many philosophical classes. And so I was just excavating all of these feelings, all of this insights, all of this knowledge. I was integrating my ideas and I was going on the weekend. So I only had classes Monday through Thursday. And then come Friday, it was rave time. And about four months into that, I decided that I wanted to throw my own raves, maybe a little longer, maybe six months. Um, and it was after I had this really immersive summer of just raving every weekend and nannying and raving and nannying and raving. I used to have this van that I would drive from the people who I nannied for. We called the mom van and the mom van would go to the raves. And I was experiencing such connection, such beauty, such joy, like just creating this community. And I got really into the inner circle of the rave scene and the people who were throwing the raves and the DJs. And I felt so alive there. It was the first time in my, you know, young adult life that I felt connected. And I compare this to the first time I looked at the ocean and could connect with what, how big the vastness of the ocean. And when I was nine, I said to my mom, the ocean is God. I wasn't wrong because God is in everything, but that was, that feeling was the same feeling I felt in the rave scene. I was in a rave scene that was love the music, not the drugs, which what a gift that was. And it's not that people didn't do drugs there. I'm a very honest person. And it's not that I didn't do drugs, but most of the time I was sober. I would say 90% of the time I was sober and about 10% I would either eat mushrooms or acid, but it was very rare, especially in my later years of the rave scene. And so I'm in this community and I'm immersing myself in and I'm like watching everybody coordinate and produce these raves. And I'm like, I could do this too. Why couldn't I do this? And so I asked my boyfriend at the time's mom, for the money to invest into throwing this rave. And I partnered with uh, a friend and we created Wish Productions. And we threw like a 2000 person rave and I made thousands of dollars. And I did this for years. Now, during this time, I'm still healing and I'm still connecting, but my defenses are strong. My OCD is off the charts. Like it takes me from the time I'm ready. It took me 45 minutes to get out of the house. So though I was so connected and so passionate and so inspired and so in my zone, there was still so much anxiety and my OCD was like really intense. And my OCD was not logical. It was based on a lot of magical thinking. So it was like, if I line these bobby pins up, they have to stay like this. Otherwise, the world will end. Now, excuse me, what does that mean the world will end? Who knows in my, you know, 20-year-old brain? It meant I would lose everything. I would fail a test. I would, excuse me, not be 
in the relationship I wanted to be in. And that time I was single for quite some time and really coming into connection to myself. And then obviously, cause I said, boyfriend's mom, I had a boyfriend and he and I were both in the rave scene and we were connected. And what I realized in that relationship is that my control, my fears of abandonment were so suffocating that I was squashing and the joy, sucking the joy out of both of our lives. It took me a while to realize this because we were both so immersed in the rave scene. My OCD was out of control. I was getting like 104% on all of my tests in school. I was like really in my zone. My perfectionism was high. My control was high. There were a lot of moments where I didn't feel joy. I felt rigidity. I felt scared. I felt contracted. And so as I realized this, I broke up with my just beautiful boyfriend and it was traumatizing and heartbreaking for both of us. And at that point in time, I realized that I needed to learn to be fully independent, a fully sovereign, connected, powerful woman. That is a deeper story, but that is when I decided I needed to do it. There are many parts to my story where I'm going to create them as their own episodes. My romantic life is definitely one of those. So that, because it has played an integral role in my transformation as a human, in my transformation spiritually, in my transformation psychologically. And it is layered and nuanced, and there are many different chapters and dimensions to it, as is true for most people. So at that point, I then went a little crazy again, because that was my nature still. It didn't go super crazy, but I remember I had I drank for a few days and I started to really not like who I was and what I was doing, what was happening. And I drove from San Francisco to Santa Cruz and to see a friend who was a mutual friend between my ex-boyfriend at the time and I. And I was there with him and two of his other guy friends. And one of them brought out acid, gel tap acid. So we ate it and it brought me back home to me. Now, I don't want to say that you need psychedelics to have this experience because you don't. But at that time, when I was at 21, I did. I would get lost and I would start drinking and then I would do these things that I didn't like. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like how wild I became. I didn't like how unboundaried I became. I didn't like how it leaked my energy. I didn't like who I was when I was drinking. That was a lot of parts of myself that were dark, that I felt shameful about, that I wasn't exploring, that I wasn't comfortable exploring, that I didn't feel regulated to explore. And that was my inner child who would come out when I was drunk, who wanted to be held. More on her later, probably in another episode. So when I was on that LSD journey with these young men, I picked a flower and I watched it die in my hand and I felt it through my whole being. And I thought connection is everything and everything is connected. And that is so integral to my story. And at the same time, I was losing my interest in the rave scene. So I had broken up with my boyfriend. I had spent you know, a year plus two years coordinating these beautiful big raves 
one of them lost money. And here's where staying power comes into play in my life. I didn't have the staying power to withstand that failure. I made it mean so many things about me. And I was so terrified to continue on. Excuse me. My nose is stuffy from the from the teariness. I did not have the staying power to continue on. I did not have the staying power to recognize that failure happens. I was young. I was 21 years old. And so I was lose and I was losing my love for the rave scene in a certain way because I was growing, I was expanding, I was shifting, I was changing. And walking into those raves didn't have that same magic for me that it had when I was, uh, you know, a couple years before, but I still was going, but I felt this loss of identity and I was going into my senior year of college. And that LSD trip set me off on what my mom likes to call the last, the lost summer. I did mushrooms many times that summer. I went back and forth between San Francisco and Santa Cruz. And I had money to do that because I had been throwing these raves. And so I had thousands of dollars shoved under my mattress at the time. And so I was just playing and exploring and journeying and eating mushrooms and recognizing my wisdom. But I was so young and just recognizing what matters in the world and what's at my heart. And yet my OCD and my anxiety was worse than it ever had been. It was taking me so long to get out of the house after I was ready. I was lining up the bobby pins. I needed to close the makeup case a certain way. I had to shut the water bottle tap a cap a certain way. I had to step on certain places when I left my house. I had to check the door like a thousand times before I left. I had to, you know, and then the car was a whole other thing. Anybody who has had OCD knows this feeling. I can feel anxiety just thinking about it. And I was determined to heal it on my own. I was determined not to take psychotropic medication. Now I want to caveat, I'm not shaming taking psychotropic medication. It was just what lived inside of me that I knew there was a deeper root. And I knew that I did not want to anesthetize or numb the symptoms. I knew that I wanted to heal it. I wanted to actually get to what it what was causing it so that I was free and I have done that it took a lot of trial and error more on that later so here I was in the lost summer and I entered my senior year of college and I went through it and my grades were still amazing they slipped a little bit because I was on my own being a little bit wild and when I graduated college something traumatic happened in my family at the same time I lost someone very special to me who was integral in my development as a human, integral in my development as an intellectual and creative being. So here I was losing the rave scene, graduated college, so there's a loss of there. I lost this very important person in my life and I had to apply for the real world jobs. I am a wild animal, a mystical, creative goddess of a human. I spent years living in the beat of the drum in the rave scene. Like I can feel it in my body when I talk about that. I can feel that meditative state. And I had to go into the real world with its defenses and its facades and its lies 
and the ways that people relate disconnected. So I went out, I applied for one job, and I got it at Barbizon Modeling School. I became their marketing and public relations manager for, it was, it's a franchise, for those of you who don't know. And so they owned the San Francisco, the Seattle, and some down in Southern California ones. And so I was going to be their marketing and public relations manager. At the same time as this, I had started seeing that DJ, he's a whole episode. So we're only going to touch on him a little bit. And the reason there's a reason he's a whole episode. So I had started seeing that DJ and I was going to rave still, even though I felt a little disconnection and I sprained my ankle in a kickboxing class at the same time. Now, something I had learned about myself is that my anxiety was quelled through exercise, through dancing, through kickboxing, through walking. Like I needed that physical movement. I needed to move that anxiety through me. There's a, there's a lot that goes up and on up in my brain. It's like, and by dancing, by moving, by exercising, it helped my thoughts. And so when I sprained my ankle in the kickboxing class, I knew I couldn't be still. And I told the DJ who I was seeing, and he said, why are you doing angry chick exercise? Why don't you go to yoga? Now, with my anxiety, I could never go to a yoga class where it's like, oh, men, you know, mantras. I would have lost my mind. At that time, I had too much aggression, too much energy, too much excitement, too much moving through me. So I decided to go to a Bikram yoga class, a hot yoga class, 105 degrees. I stepped into that room on a Monday evening, 8 p.m. in June of 2002. And I fell in love at first sweat. I felt so at home in that room. My anxiety calmed. My obsessive thinking calmed. I felt connected to myself. I felt like this is it. I stepped onto that mat and it was everything for me. And I became very dedicated to my yoga, yoga practice. It was hard. It was hot. I was a bit of a masochist. They were yelling at me, telling me what to do. And it trained my wild brain. It allowed me to come to moments of stillness, moments of silence, moments of feeling able to just breathe. There was a lot happening for me emotionally. There was starting this new job. There was, you know, not certain about the rave scene. There was dating this DJ, which is a whole other thing. I was activated in my attachment wound. I was terrified and I still knew that I wanted to be that sovereign, majestic woman, independent, fully able to ebb and flow with life, fully able, excuse me, <laughs> like I need tissues, fully able to expand, fully able to just be. I knew at that young of an age that I wanted to feel able to just be, and I didn't. I did not feel able to just be. So in my job at Barbizon Marketing, Barbizon Modeling School, I would take the bus to work sometimes, and I would look around at the faces on the bus and the weight they carried and the heaviness, and I would cry because I would feel like the whole world is defeated and miserable, and that's not 
who we are meant to be. We are not meant to feel defeated and miserable. We are not meant to be living lives that suck our soul. Our culture is so devoid of soul. And that was so vastly aware. I was so vastly aware of that, having been in the rave scene with all of this soul and all of this vibrancy and all of this beauty and all of this connection to then go into the real world. I'm using air quotes right now for those of you listening to the podcast and not watching the video. Go into the real world and to see how life-sucking it was. Now, I got really fortunate in that at Barbizon Modeling School, as the marketing and public relation manager, I started to go to these high schools and give lectures on self-esteem and confidence. Sometimes I was speaking to 20 students. Sometimes I was speaking to 200 students. And there was a guy who did this and he kind of trained me in it. And because there were these, you know, brochures of how they wanted you to do it. And I read these and be like, ugh, these are so boring. So this guy who trained me, he, excuse me, um, he stepped up there and he would just tell his story. And it was so inspiring. And I'll never forget. So I walked up and the first thing I said was, Hi, I'm Yarrow. I dropped out of high school with a 0.06 GPA. I went on to graduate from college, summa cum laude, and I started an electronic music production company while I was there. And I would talk to them about my, my grasping onto my boyfriend in high school and how I sacrificed myself over and over and over again because I just wanted to be saved by him. And then I spoke about how I went on to create like the story that I've been telling all of you. And it was so inspiring for them. And I would receive letters from these high school girls telling me how I changed their life, how they started going back to school, how they recognized what was happening for them in their relationship with their boyfriend. And it was so profound and it meant so much to me. And I knew I have something more I want to do with my life. Now, at this time, I was still throwing smaller raves on the side a little bit for fun. And I was working at Barb's on modeling school and I was doing yoga. And I thought that I wanted to go to law school. So I started studying for the LSAT and standardized tests are very hard for me. I had a lot of shame about it because I know how brilliant I am. I do not do well on standardized tests. I would be in the library studying for this test and I would be arguing with the questions, with the answers to the questions. I would spend hours doing this and then I would argue like, well, this is not right because this, that, and the other. And like, it's just not my jam and that is okay. But at the time I really wanted, my ego was like, I have to get into the best law school. So I was studying for the LSAT. And at the time I decided I can't work a full-time job and study for the LSAT and still do yoga as much as I want to do it. And I wanted to do yoga in the morning. I didn't want to be going in the evening. I have always made choices for my wellness. I have always prioritized my wellness because when you prioritize your wellness, your well-being, your heart, your soul, your spirit, everything shifts and it takes courage. And sometimes it took me doing things I didn't technically want to do. But you know what else I didn't want to do? Be at an office at 9 a.m. and sit in a desk all day. So when I quit, I started working at Origins Beauty Counter in, Mac in Macy's. I only lasted there a few months. I was not good at retail. I would sit in the, oh, my cat is, you know, wants to wants a lot of attention right now. I would sit in the basement and I would study for the LSAT during like the slow hours. 
not what you're supposed to be doing. And so a friend of mine from the rave scene actually was working at this five-star restaurant in San Francisco called Fifth Floor. And the chef there was a three-star Michelin chef. And she asked if I wanted to be a food runner. So I applied and this amazing woman who interviewed me, she told me this later. She said, I saw that you threw raves and I was like, oh yes, she can do this. It was very, just a food runner. You would think, oh yeah, no, this man was so connected to his food and to his art. And so everything had to be perfect. And I was coming in, I had dined in restaurants like that for years. That's also another story for another time. My, I was basically raised as a teenager in fine dining restaurants, hours at dinner, like five hours at dinner. So I have this innate within me, this culinary, uh, this love of the culinary arts. It's within me. I was raised by a stepfather who was very into that. And so going into this kitchen, I knew what the food was. I knew the front of the house experience. I did not know what happened in the back of the house, nor did I know how strict it is and how full of discipline and art and, and just true passion, sometimes a little sadistic, but I threw myself into it, made so many embarrassing mistakes the first couple of months I was there. And then it clicked. And fifth floor became my new rave scene. It became the place that I went to where I feel, felt seen, where I felt understood, where I felt passionate, where I felt energized. And I was still, I had taken the LSAT. It's so funny. I had taken the LSAT the morning I applied for the job and I got the job. And then my LSAT score was not what I wanted to wanted it to be. So I decided to take it again. And when I took it again, it was still not what I wanted it to be, but it was okay. I applied to law school. I never even opened the applications because at that point in time, I had been working at fifth floor for long enough. And I had been watching the chef there and the way that he loved his food, the way he was so passionate about his food. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to go to law school. I want to love what I do as much as he loves what he does. And this was in the moment where I was watching him take a razor blade and perfectly line up salt on the plate, like granules, beautiful granules of salt, like high-end flavored salt on the plate. While the tickets from the dining room just came in, they just kept coming and kept coming and he didn't give any fucks. He just kept doing his thing. He was in his zone. And I felt so inspired in that moment. And I literally thought, I'm not going to law school. I wanna love what I do as much as he loves what he does. And that set me on a whole new journey. As I was in this restaurant, my anxiety and my OCD were off the charts. I was practicing a lot of yoga. I was moving through a lot of emotion. I was developing intimate friendships. I was connecting to myself in new ways. I was excavating new things. And yet I was still experiencing this anxiety, this OCD. I still was had all of these magical thinking rituals. There was just so much emotion to process. There was so much for me to uncover. And I felt so free making the choice not to go to law school. 
I felt so free knowing that I was going to just leap and I would figure it out. But just leaping and figuring it out can feel so scary when you don't know how to be in the unknown. Being able to be in the unknown makes you the most powerful person in the room. And I knew this at this point, I was 25. I knew this at 25, but I couldn't do it. So knowing something and being able to integrate it are two very different things. I am going to leave you here for the first episode with me realizing I don't want to go to law school because I want to care about what I do as much as that three-star Michelin chef cares about what he does. I looked so free on the outside. I was so trapped on the inside. And I knew deeply and fully that I had such wisdom to share with this world. I just didn't have a direction for it to go in yet. I didn't have a place to channel it. And I was still unearthing so much of my pain and my shame and along the way experiencing my magic. And I'm excited for you to hear more in the next episode. If you love this episode and want to share it with the world, screenshot, post, and tag me at Heal with Yarrow or the Heal and Expand podcast on Instagram so I can enter you in a drawing to win my 40-day course on Mastering Abundance, a journey to money magic, wealth, and abundance. And if you want to get notified of the next episode, go ahead and subscribe here on iTunes so you never miss a chapter. Thank you for healing and expanding with me. Take time to come home to yourself always, and I will see you soon, dear ones.